Uh, this morning we're talking about deacons. How many of you have ever heard a sermon in your local church on deacons? Not online, but in your local church on deacons. How many? Hands? Okay, like a third of the room, something like that. I personally have never heard a sermon taught in my local church on deacons, nor have I ever taught a sermon on deacons. So I'm excited this morning. Um, I'm just leaning into this series called Present Future. As a church family together, we're um, a young kind of flowering tree, but on our way by God's grace to becoming a fully flowered, mature tree, able to cast shade, give shade, and a tree that is also bearing fruit too. So we're talking about, last week I talked through um, elders and, and what a biblically New Testament qualified elder is in a local church. If you remember, I said there are only two distinct offices according to the New Testament, for leadership in a local church. And those offices are elder and deacon. And the word elder is interchangeably used also with overseer and shepherd or pastor. So elder, overseer, pastor, all used the same way in the New Testament. Anytime you see those words, they're talking about that one office. We around here just call it elder. Additionally, there is a, an office called deacon or named deacon. And so that's what we're doing this morning is taking a good introductory, that's all it's really going to be, a look at deacons and what deacons are in a local church. Now, I want to ask you this question. What is, um, beforehand, this is just a good way to gauge kind of where we're at, what our understanding of deacons is. What is a deacon's role in a local church? If somebody came to you hypothetically on a Sunday morning asking you that right now, who is a deacon and what does a deacon do? This is an opportunity for you to say, Okay, a deacon serves. Okay. Okay, a deacon supports the mission of the church. Somebody else had a hand raised? Okay, a deacon serves others. That's good. Anybody else? Okay, a deacon's lead. Okay, a deacon is a member in good standing or of good standing in a local church. Okay, that's all spot on. You guys know what, you guys have a good pulse on what a deacon is. Now, interestingly, the Bible doesn't actually say a lot about deacons. It doesn't have, the New Testament doesn't have a ton to say about deacons. But the Bible does have something to say. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take a look at four passages in the New Testament that say something significant about deacons. Here's my aim. This is what I'm trying to do this morning with this sermon. I am, my aim is that you would come away with scriptural clarity and scriptural conviction on what a deacon is, who a deacon is, and that they are essential in the life of a local church and I'm not done, my aim is also that I believe some of you are them. So Whitney, in her announcements during Life Together this morning, just a moment ago, she's saying, hey, don't disqualify yourself on the choir thing and on the art thing. What I'm saying to you on the deacon thing is don't, don't, don't disqualify yourself. Go, that's for somebody else. That's too formal, not me. Like, I, too much doubt or too much this, or too much that. I just want to encourage you, church, do not disqualify yourself. Um, interestingly, the Germans in the 1940s did not like deacons at all. 
the Netherlands fell to the Germans in 1940. And when the Netherlands fell, the Dutch, that's what you call people from the Netherlands, the Dutch Reformed Church, that's like the the majority church in the Netherlands, they rose up and specifically the deacons within um, the the Dutch Reformed Church, they were giving shelter to those who who were seeking refuge from the Germans, the politically oppressed. They were working to take care of the poor and the needy. And as Germany was infiltrating the Netherlands, and taking over, they caught wind of these deacons from the Dutch Reformed Church, and the Germans actually issued a decree that the office of deacon should be abolished. People are laughing. So now, all of a sudden, July 17th, 1941, there was a, a the Dutch Reformed Church, they call this synod together, this collection of leaders within the church. And they actually, they, they resolved something really interesting. I'm pulling this from a, guy, a book called Deacons by Matt Smethurst. He tells this story, and the Dutch believers resolved this. Whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. And then they declared, whoever lays hands on diaconate, um, Diakona lays hands on worship. Whoever lays hands on the deacons lays hands on worship. And the Germans backed down. Literally. They left them alone. Amazing to see the influence that these leaders in the local church had. Now, Matt Smethers, I'm leaning heavily on his book this morning just to give some order and some form um, to this message. This is what he says about these four passages that I'm going to walk us through this morning. He says, deacons are explicit in two passages in our New Testaments. We're going to look at those in just a moment. They're implicit or implied in another passage, and they're debatable in a fourth passage. So I'm going to walk us through those four passages, but this is the big idea. Everything is serving this point this morning. And the point is this, that Jesus gives the church, he gives us deacons who lead the church by serving the church. It's actually what the word deacon in Greek means. It means servant, literally. You can use it as a verb or as a noun. What deacons do is they provide structure and they provide care to their local church, through their service to the church. That's what a deacon does. So um, a pastor, a guy named Jamie Dunlop, he, he gives this helpful framework for how elders and deacons and a congregation actually work together in a church. And, and it's this, that elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate that ministry, and the congregation does the ministry. So what elders do is they, they, they discern from the Lord and they design and they delegate initiatives. And then the deacons take those initiatives and they facilitate them out into the life of the church and the church carries them out. Now, there's overlap between all of these. Don't think like high tower, like an elder's just off to the side, like issuing decrees, not a chance. An elder is a member of a local church in good standing, doing the work uh, of ministry alongside, but primarily in leading the church and in shepherding the church. So in this paradigm of deacons, They are lead servants. And like I said, that's exactly what this word deacon means. It means servant, literally. Now, first explicit text in the scriptures 
I want you to see this, that deacons were an official leadership office in the local church within 30 years of Jesus's resurrection. Early church, there they are. Paul, in his letter to a church in Philippi, he, he opens this letter by saying this, Paul and Timothy, servants or deacons of Christ Jesus, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, with the elders and with the deacons. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first explicit text where deacons are mentioned. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. It's pretty plain. If you want to search more around it, go ahead. Here's a second point this morning in service of that big idea that Jesus gives his church deacons who lead by serving. Deacons are to exhibit lives that are shaped by the gospel. They're shaped by the life of Christ, the goodness of Christ. First Timothy chapter three, this is where we spent the majority of our time last week. First Timothy chapter three, verses eight through 13. If, you're, if you've got a black Bible in the room or there's one around you, go. I want you, to, I want you to have this text open. Open your own Bibles or your apps to First Timothy chapter three, uh, verses eight through 13. I'm actually gonna read through verse 15 this morning just to get it kind of plain in the back of our minds. This is what God's word says. Deacons, likewise, why is the likewise there? Because he's connecting it to something that he's just said. He's just given the qualifications for elders. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, or you could say devious in speech. They're not to be addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith, the mystery of the gospel with a clear conscience, And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or the wives, or the women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, church in Philippi, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, ought to conduct themselves in the household of the living God, which is the church of the living God, It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is God's word. This is a great passage. It's a good example for us and description for us of Christ-like integrity. And we're going to come back at the very end and we're going to end on this, but I want this passage to, to be ringing in our ears. I want these qualifications, these character traits to be ringing in our ears this morning as I teach. Now I'm moving on to the third text this morning and this is the first implicit text, where deacons are applied here, but not specifically named as such. Turn in your Bibles. I want want us to be interacting with the scriptures this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 this morning. I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to cruise. I'm going to give a little bit of background story here. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is Luke writing. He also wrote Luke's gospel. He's giving an orderly account of the early church. And he says this in Acts 6.1. Now, in these days, so that is talking about, it's alluding to something that has just come before. 
when the disciples were increasing in number, notice that, a complaint by the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews. The Jew, they were Jewish by heritage, but they had grown up as Greeks. These, this complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. This is about 5,000 people. And they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to deacon tables, to serve tables, to serve food. Therefore, brothers, that word brothers, there is a Delphos, it can mean brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or reputation who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to deaconing the word. That word ministry there is deacon. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry or deaconing the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Imagine that, 5,000 people all in one accord. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and, T and Timon, I don't know how you say these names, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, who was a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And look at this, verse 7, and the word of God continued its increase, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multitude greatly in Jerusalem. This is the city where Jesus was just executed and where he was raised from the dead. And don't miss this, a great many of the priests, temple priests, Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith of the gospel. They became followers of Jesus. They left their religion to follow Jesus, or they recognized that their religion was actually pointing to the Messiah. It was wonderful. Now, what came before all of this? Briefly, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, the disciples, they gather together in one place. There's about 120 of them. They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're obeying Jesus. They're waiting for this power that's going to come from on high. And in Acts chapter 2, the whole city is gathered together at this time of Pentecost. Jerusalem is bustling. It's filled with pilgrims from all over the place. The Spirit of God descends and, and so fills and comes in power to this group of this group of 120, that it causes a total scene and a ruckus, and it gets people's attention out on the streets. And people are saying that they're actually drunk. They're partying all night long. And Peter stands up and corrects them and says, no, 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 no. We're at, like something has happened to us. And he begins, he preaches the very first Christian Christ-centered sermon. And the people are so moved by his sermon that they literally cry out to him and they say, like, what do we have to do to get in on this, to be saved? And he says, repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And you and your whole household will be saved, will be brought and drawn into the family of God in a way that you did not expect. And, and, and Luke tells us he counted, they counted. They took a, a record of how many people, 3,000 people, became believers on that day. So the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon. Chaos. Gospel chaos. Like good things are happening. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that, 
that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to gathering with one another, and they began to pool their resources and made sure that there was not a needy person among them, and they had a good reputation among outsiders, and day by day their number increased because God was giving them favor. And then in Acts chapter 4, 4, it tells us that another 2,000 people through a powerful sermon came to know the real Jesus. And so now the church is like 5,000 people at this time. Signs and wonders are happening. All kinds of good is being done. And the growth and the chaos is beautiful and really hard. Because in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, people are starting to miss meals. Vulnerable people, the Greek widows. And so some division starts to bubble up within the church from the inside. And they, and they bring their complaint before the people. And the apostles listen to them. And so the, these 12 apostles, they call together the full number of 5,000 men and women and children and all of these people, probably in the temple courts or somewhere like that. And they say that it's not right that this that gospel preaching, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, it's not right that we should be diverted from that, that that should cease. And so they said, pick seven men from among you who have a really good reputation. So if they're shady, somebody in the 5,000, they're going to be able to raise a hand and they're going to be able to say, I don't think so. So pick people with good reputations, those who seem to you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. Wisdom is really going to be needed. They're going to have to navigate some pretty difficult situations as deacons, as they're serving, as they're trying to discern situations and and the distribution of food and goods. They're going to need wisdom. So they're going to need to be trustworthy individuals. And these apostles say, whoever you bring to us, we will appoint for this service. And so the people bring together seven. And then the apostles, the overseers, the pastors, they say, we too are going to labor for your good. We're not just in an ivory tower here. We are laboring for your good through prayer and through deaconing the word through serving you the word. And so you deacon by putting food on tables and we will deacon by nourishing your souls with the word of God and through our prayers that the gospel would continue to go forward through the church with boldness and that people would continue to come to believe. Notice this pleased everybody. It's wise leadership on the part of the elders here to delegate these tangible acts of service to members of this congregation. And these members of the congregation, they're publicly known before everybody to exhibit lives that are shaped by the gospel. It's one of the qualifications for deacons, that their life would exhibit a dependence on Jesus. And so the elders are serving by leading, and the deacons begin to lead through their service. Now, in in verse 5, the latter part of 5, and in verse 6 in Acts chapter Uh, six, they tell us the names of these people that they picked. And so the congregation puts these guys before them and they commissioned them on behalf of the local church. Did they title them deacons? No, they didn't. They didn't come away with that title. But what we're seeing is this is beginning to lay groundwork for this future office that will occur a few decades or even just years after afterwards, after this moment in time. Notice the result of this organization in verse 7. The word of God increased 
it continued to go forward. The number of disciples increased greatly. Even Jewish priests become obedient to the faith. Think about this. Bit of a summary here real quick, and then I'm going to end with just something that I have never seen before in this text or realized. There's all this gospel chaos going on. It's good. That's what church planting is like at the beginning. You're just trying to figure it out. You have no idea what you're doing. You got a group of people with you who have no idea what they're doing. You might have a sending church who kind of knows what they're doing. Hopefully you do. And then we're just like, we're figuring it out together. And gospel chaos necessitates that there be some gospel order. We need to bring some order to these things for the purpose of what? To stuff everybody? No, to increase the capacity to serve. So gospel chaos requires gospel order and gospel order begins to organize gospel service and gospel service facilitates gospel growth, good news growth. The spirit of God is mysterious and bringing his people good in some really surprising ways. Here is one thing that is so surprising and amazing about this text in Acts, I think. The the Jewish elders here, the apostles, they appointed Greek deacons. Every name on that list is a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. They're Hellenists. Here's the point. There's a hidden fault line in this story, and it goes back centuries and centuries. There is overt discrimination and ethnic superiority between Hebrews and Gentiles and Gentiles and Hebrews. They're just lobbing back and forth at each other, discriminating, keeping one another out. This is what the apostle Paul talks about is so amazing. The work that the gospel does in Ephesians chapter two is it breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between two kinds. Greek and Hebrew, or Gentile and, or, yeah, Greek and, uh, Gentile and Jew. Howard Marshall writes this, uh, uh, there even being a hidden punchline in this. The very minorities that are feeling the sting of unfair food distribution are the ones who are given a voice. They're tasked and they're empowered to make decisions on behalf of the whole church. It's beautiful absolutely beautiful because they had been taught to protect the Jewish way, not to extend it to Greeks. And the very thing they do is extend it to, yeah, they're Jews racially, but they're Greeks culturally and they empower them. And a pastor and church historian named Mark Dever, along with uh, a guy named Paul Alexander, what they begin to do is trace out the implications, the things that begin to come to the early church and, and come about in the early church from Acts 6. And they write this. So these are the implications of this passage. Deacons then serve to care for the physical and the financial needs of the church. And they do so in a way that heals divisions, that brings unity under God's word, and that supports the leadership of the elders. Without the practical service of the deacons, the elders will not be freed to devote themselves to praying and to serving God's word to people. Elders need deacons to serve practically, and deacons need elders to lead spiritually. And I wanna say something even on that note, that this division of labor here is important, but it is not mutually exclusive. Deacons do not just serve physically 
and not as spiritual leaders. They have to hold to the hold firm to the gospel, the trustworthy word is taught. They are theologians. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the elders aren't just now excluded from physical service, but they serve. And so these two offices, they overlap and they complement. You could say they are complementarian in the way that they as offices work together. So I just want to, I want you to hear that loud and clear around deacons and elders and how they work together. Now, here is the first, here's our debatable text. And I'm just going to, I'm going to put all of my cards on the table with this text. Phoebe was likely a deaconess. This is a debatable text because some people hold that the office of deacon is not open to women. Other people hold that the office of deacon is open to men and women. Paul would write to the church at Rome in Romans. It's a letter in your New Testament. And at the very end of it, as he's concluding it, he says this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deaconess. If you look at the footnote there, it'll say deaconess of the church at Centre. I write to you that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Here Phoebe is called a servant. It's the same Greek word used for deacon in 1 Timothy 3, which we read earlier and also in Philippians 1. I want you to really, anytime you see a little number next to these verses, it's not the verse number. It looks a little different than the verse numbers. It's a footnote that guides you to some clarity on the bottom of the pages of your Bible. I want you to pay attention to those footnotes. Now, I'm going to read a quote from a guy named Dr. Michael Spiegel of Dallas Theological Seminary. And this is what he, he says about this passage. He says this. He says, Paul describes Phoebe as a diakonos of the church at Centre, a deacon of the church at Centre, specifying her function as a deacon to that specific church. This may seem insignificant, he writes, until we realize that whenever the Greek phrase blank of the church, deacon of the church or elder of the church, whenever that phrase is used in the New Testament and in all of the earliest Christian literature, the personal designation there refers to an office of leadership, not just a generic function. So last week, we talked about uh, the Apostle Paul calling the Ephesian elders to himself in Acts 20 for a meeting. And he said he called the elders of the church, quote, the elders of the church. That specified an office of leadership. Here, the very same thing is being said. She is a deacon of the church. This is what Dr. Michael um, Spiegel says and how how he lands this plane. He says this. He says, therefore, if Phoebe is merely a helpful assistant of the church at Centre in Romans 16.1. This is the only time that construction is used this way in the earliest Christian literature, period. It's the only time. It's a complete and total outlier. This, cards on the table, is my position. I believe that the office of deacon is open to women and men together as brothers and sisters. And so I wholeheartedly support and I believe in supporting women and commissioning them in this church, in our church, as deacons. While I do believe and hold that the office of elder pastor is reserved for men, the office of deacon is open to 
women, and men. Now, there is one more passage that we've got to explore, and it's the longest, most explicit passage we have. We've already read it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to go there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, verse 8. I'll give you a moment for your head to catch up with my words. There's a portion of this passage that deals with gender. And so I want to touch that first, but it's not the main point of the passage. So I don't want it to be the main point of the passage because that's bad exegesis. And that's how you get bad theology. But it is a point of this passage, and I want to hit it while we're on the subject. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 8, actually verse starting up at verse 1, I told you to go there and I didn't go there. Um, it starts with the qualifications for overseers and so for elders. So in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, you see, this, you see this progression happening where male elders are addressed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And then in 3, this is the grammatical flow of the passage, I believe. You can differ with it. This is debatable. It is an open-handed issue in the local church. In verse, verses 8 through 10, I believe that the Apostle Paul is directly addressing male deacons in the church. Where it begins, um, their wives, I don't like that translation at all in the English. Wives or women likewise, I think this passage, verse 11, is addressing women deacons in the local church. Then in verse 12, he returns to male deacons as um, addressing them as the husband of one wife. And then in verse 13 gives a summary where he is addressing all deacons, male and female. I want to show you something here. Verses um, 8 and 10 and verse 11 in their construction are almost identical. So look at this chart on the screen. This is by a pastor. Uh, he works with Acts 29 now. Uh, his name is Jeff Metters. He's in Texas. He says this in verse 8. Um, it starts with deacons likewise must be dignified. Now look at women in verse 11. They must be what? Dignified. Then he says deacons in verses 8, um, 9, and 10, he says they're not, double t not to be double-tongued. Double women likewise, not slanderers, speaking of speech. Back to verses 8 through 10, not addicted to much wine. Women, sober-minded, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery with a clear conscience. Faithful in all things is a very good summary for everything that he's saying in verses 9 and 10. It is extremely repetitive if this is just aimed at male deacons only. I do believe that the Apostle Paul is speaking specifically to women deacons here, and he's showing them side by side. Now, here's kind of a, I know I'm not building like a, an airtight argument. I'm just trying to give you my position and why I'm seeing it and where I'm seeing it. So it's going to leave a lot of questions, which means that you've got to go on the hunt. You've got to be students of your own Bibles. I want to ask this question though. Why would Paul require, why would he issue requirements for wives of deacons and not wives of elders? 
If elders are leading the local church and they're responsible for teaching the church and guarding the doctrine and protecting and shepherding the church and all of, they must give an account to God for the way they shepherd the church. Why would he not give their wives qualifications as well? Why deacons' wives? I believe it's because the text is saying that women, likewise, here are your qualifications for the office of deacon. Now, this is 100% a second-tier issue. It is debatable. People I love and respect and look up to like crazy say no to female deacons. I don't have any authority over them, but as long as their women are honored and served and loved and consulted, then okay. But as for us, I'm all in on female deacons. Fight me. <laughs> However, that's not the main point of this passage. <laughs> Here's the main point of the passage. It's going to be on the screen. Deacons are leaders within a local church who are known for the quality of their character and the excellence of their service. It's the main point of the passage. This is what they're all about. They're known for the quality of their character and the excellence of their service. Remember, this is one of the two explicit texts on deacons, all right? So last week we talked about elders and how only one of their qualifications was a skill-based qualification, and it was teaching. But everything else related to an elder's qualifications are about their character. This list of character qualifications for deacons is similar, and it leaves out teaching altogether. It's not a qualification to be a deacon. Remember also I said that teaching for an elder is not just like pulpit teaching, but it's one-on-one -on -one discipleship, it's small groups, it's like leading breakouts and teaching the church in a variety of environments. So you don't just have to be eloquent with a mic on your face to be an elder in a local church, but there are ways to teach and to um, shepherd and to care for a local church that don't include preaching although I think there should be opportunities for everyone who is an elder to teach. Now, <clears throat> look at this. Um, deacons are leaders within a local church who are known for the quality of their character and the excellence of their service. There's basically a banner that hangs over the life of a deacon, and it's this dignified. A deacon is dignified. They lead, they, they, they live their lives with a sense of dignity. Here's what it means. Now we're going to walk through some of the big qualifications in this list. Here's what it means to be a, a dignified deacon in Jesus' church, not double-tongued. A double-tongued person is devious in speech. So because this role, the role of a deacon, it's really public. You're serving people in some pretty public ways. You're involved in the day-to-day -day realities and sufferings and minutiae. Uh, and confidence of a person's life, trustworthy speech is a must. Are people's names and stories safe in your mouth? Gossips do not make dignified deacons. Matt Smethurst says, to be double-tongued means you say something to one group and then say or insinuate something else to another group, to a different that's what it means to be double-tongued. Additionally, deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. He doesn't say little wine. He says much wine. Uh, that's not the point. <laughs> Dignified deacons are successful in resisting being enslaved to substances and addictions or anything that would compromise their witness. 
as followers of Jesus. I want to say something to you, church. We have recovering addicts and alcoholics in our family, in our church. Does this mean then that you are disqualified from being a deacon? I don't believe it does. The question becomes, are you fighting your sin? Are you walking in active confession and repentance? And because of the spirit of Jesus Christ in you, are you and have you gained some freedom and some distance from this addiction? We're going to appoint somebody who's just getting sloshed on the side? No. But somebody who has been tested Notice that language in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And after they've been found blameless in this area, I believe that the office of deacon is open to you. So we will talk, yes, and we will be careful, but I want to say that there is a place for you here. Deacons are not to be greedy uh, for dishonest gain. Deacons often deal with finances and for caring for those in need. And so if you're greedy as a deacon, you're going to have access to money. Judas helped himself to the purse. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like if you are greedy and love money and are tempted to, if you're counting, you know, like the giving in this church or you have access to the bank account and you're tempted to take some for yourself, stop. I do not believe that this office would be a good place for you until you gain some distance and some track record and do some business with that in your life. Additionally, deacons hold on to the gospel with clear consciences. You gotta know the gospel. You gotta hold to it. You gotta live in light of it. Deacons are theologians too, right? So living by the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. And Paul also says that deacons need to be tested Loving and living by the word, it takes some time. You got to live through some difficult situations. It's not enough to have good character, but uh, really shady. Well, it's not enough to have good character and be incompetent to the task that's being asked of you. It's also not enough to be overly competent, but not have good character. So like, if you can rock building projects with the best of them, but you can't tell the truth to save your life, you're probably not a deacon. A deacon's got to display both character and competence in the task being asked ask of them. And the only way to get to this is through some testing, through just living in relationship, which leads to this. Deacons need to prove themselves blameless. We tend to go with blameless language, or at least I do, um, to like morally perfect, wrong it's not what Paul means by this. What he means is that uh, we are talking about being free from blame in our conduct. Okay, we're living lives above reproach. Deacons are faithful in all things. They manage their children and their households well. Deacons are organized and competent to the tasks being asked of them. Many churches have deacons of audiovisual or deacons of setup or deacons of hospitality or deacons of kids ministry or deacons of finance. There are all kinds of categories where deacons serve the local church. Notice that Paul here also attaches a reward to a deacon's service. Um, one author says those who serve the local church well and therefore serve Christ, deacon Christ, like Paul and Timothy did in Philippians 1.1, they'll receive two gifts in increasing measure. 
Paul says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The two gifts that they receive are respect and boldness. Respect comes horizontally from the church and boldness descends vertically from God. It's a gift that he gives. Matt Smethers says this in his book on deacons. Paul concludes these lists for leaders in local churches with a purpose statement, and it's this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you're going to know, you might know how one ought to behave or conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A deacon's job description. This is where we're landing the plane this morning. The big idea, deacons serve Jesus' church, or lead Jesus' church, rather, by serving her. Deacons provide structure and care to their local church through their service to the church. So elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the congregation does ministry. Some of the ways that deacons facilitate ministry is by spotting and meeting tangible needs, by protecting and promoting church unity, and by serving and supporting the ministry of their elders. My aim this morning was to help you to come away with clarity and conviction from the Bible on who a deacon is and what a deacon does, and for you to see deacons in the life of a local church as essential. But it was more than that, too. I believe that some of you are them. In fact, I know that some of you are them because you're already deaconing. You're already looking to fill needs in the local church. You're already in support of church unity. You're already carrying out with faithfulness the tasks that are being asked of you. You're already supporting your local church leadership. We don't yet have deacons officially commissioned, but we will by God's grace. And so I want to ask, are you one of them? Are you one of them? Do not disqualify yourself. You can't just appoint yourself, but don't disqualify yourself because you can do that just by saying no and just pulling out. Who knows? Jesus may strengthen you to strengthen his church in such a way that even the Nazis would back down to your fierceness of service on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where I'll end. The Lord Jesus did not come to be deaconed. But he came to deacon, to serve. That's the word in Matthew chapter. It's deacon. He did not come to be served and just to be received as a king in all the pomp, but he came to give away his life as a ransom for many. His is the pattern that elders in a local church follow. Deacons, theirs, his is the pattern that deacons in a local church follow. We are a church family increasingly submitted to the one who gave away his life as a ransom for others. And that is what we are increasingly stepping into as a church family. The gospel is so trustworthy. The way that the Lord serves his people is incredible. And when we start to focus 
our service, not just on our service, but we first go to him and we say, how have I been served by him? How has he ministered to me? How has he come to me in all of my muck and my guilt and my shame and all the fear that I carry and the doubt that I wrestle with? How has he yet showed up to me? He showed up to me and to you in faithfulness. And he continued to just give his life to us. And that's where our service comes from because you know if you're deaconing, you don't always feel like deaconing, do you? Not everybody who is here this morning felt like being here this morning. Can I get an amen? And the Lord Jesus provides. He continues to provide and to nourish our souls. So as we go to the table this morning, communion, think about the way that Jesus himself, the way that he's served you, the way that he's given his life for you, and it's through him giving his life to you you receiving that, that he begins to work out his life and his good to a world through you and I. We don't do so that God will love. We do because he has. We've got to remember the gospel in our service and in our leadership and in our coming together, in our communion and our singing and our prayer and all of life. The gospel has to be central. Pray with me. Father, we... We love you. And as we get up in just a moment and we sing how you love us, that's where our work, that's where our hope, that's where our joy, that's where our comfort, it all comes out of that. You love us so. So thank you. Empower your church. Holy Spirit, name some people in their seats. Haunt them in the best way possible. That they would just say, I'm leaning in this direction. I think that the Lord may have something. Can we talk? Yes and amen. Holy Spirit, name your deacons. Name your elders. Strengthen your church. And as we aim at partnership in the coming weeks and months, help us to throw all in and to strengthen together as your people here in Post Falls. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.